Hello, my name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about visionary director Ridley Scott. Oh. But before that, I'm going to have to advertise something that I haven't advertised in weeks, and that's our Patreon. Do you like listening to this podcast? Of course you do. You're listening to it right now. And wouldn't you want to hear more of me and Will every week? You can hear about some of the important topics of our day, like Kung Pao, Enter the Fist. (laughs) We did Hot Fuzz. This week we did Fire Walk With Me. And it's only $5, and you get four episodes every month that's a whole new episode every week i usually post them when i post the weekly ones as well help justin pay his bills exactly help me pay my bills please (laughs) and at the same time if i'm advertising why don't you go buy the movie i directed teddy bomb oh yeah uh it's a feature-length film will is sadly not featured in it but if you guys buy a lot of copies maybe you'll be featured in my next feature film i i might have a role in uh the upcoming justin DeClue joint impossible horror you can find teddy bomb at i believe teddybomb.com or just search teddy bomb and google and the blu-rays are 20 dollars. and there's a bunch of special features hours and hours of them are you guys sick of going to the post office <laughs> Go to stamps.com. Do you want the most comfortable mattress? How? I just shit my pants. Just (laughs) coffee.coop. Do you still listen to Mark Maron? No, never. (laughs) All right. So Ridley Scott, a director that Will has been making uh, faces and moaning about like a child that doesn't want to eat his vegetables. All week. All week. I mean, it's bad enough that he's not good, but the fact Ooh. that his movies are two and a half hours long every time out of the gate. Good so, God. So I have to explain why I want to talk about Ridley Scott. Please do. He's a director that I have been weirdly fascinated with since I was a child. And the reason for that is Gladiator had a very big place in my childhood. I went to go see it in the theaters with my dad. We loved it. I watched it on DVD all the time. And at the same time, he's a director that also allowed you into the process. Right when DVDs were coming out, all his movies had tons of special features. Prometheus has a five-hour documentary on the movie on the Blu-ray. Have I watched it? I'd rather not say. Oh, God. (laughs) And thirdly, one of the reasons I've been obsessed with Ridley Scott is that for a long time, I found Alien and Blade Runner impenetrable. Really? I didn't understand why people love those movies so much. The two consensus choice for yep. good Ridley Scott Absolutely. Films. And the reason for Alien was that I saw Aliens first, and I couldn't wrap my head around why Alien was not more like Aliens, mm-hmm. a movie that I had fallen in love with and had watched numerous times. But, of course, you grow up, Alien is a masterpiece, it's a great haunted house movie on a spaceship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, it's great. Blade Runner, on the other hand, is a movie I still can't get into. Really? You don't like the uh, atmosphere of Blade Runner? The beautiful... Love the atmosphere and the visual opulence of Blade Runner. The big problem I have with Blade Runner is its story. And especially Harrison Ford in its center, who is a giant weenie that I hate. With a passion. You aren't fascinated by these questions about what it means to be human? Yeah, that's fine. But that has nothing to do with Harrison Ford. Harrison Ford is a character who shoots women in the back and is terrible at his job. Okay. I mean, you don't have to like the character. But, but I... that's fine. But the movie portrays it in a way that like, this is the cool guy that you love. Like when the new trailer for Blade Runner 2049 came out, Harrison Ford comes on screen and people are like, oh shit. I think that has more to do with 
the fact that he's Harrison Ford and he's got a lot of natural charisma. But I mean, at the end of Blade Runner, I mean, the director's cut at least, Mm -hmm. I mean, he comes across pretty badly, I think. Yeah, he does. The whole movie treats him pretty bad. And I think Ridley Scott is aware of that. But one of the reasons that Blade Runner I found so difficult to kind of engage with is the fact of its critical consensus Mm -hmm. and the way that popular culture has kind of absorbed it well it's very cold to the touch mm-hmm. it's one that i had trouble with when i was a kid and then i think when i saw it again as as an adult i uh i appreciated it i mean i've struggled with blade runner my entire life i remember my dad renting it me watching it and going i don't get it mm-hmm. buying it on vhs from radio shack the director's cut <laughs> watching it and going oh, i don't get it <laughs> did you watch all five versions of it <laughs> maybe i did <laughs> i actually like the version with harrison ford's deadpan narration and you know the movie if you look into its history, there's a great book called, uh, I think it's Future Noir, which is about the making of Blade Runner. And Harrison Ford did not want to be in that movie. And I think you see it in his performance. Interesting. Yeah. yeah like he had to be wrangled out of his trailer to do it. You scene. also see that in all of his performances since about <laughs> 1985, I want to yep, say. I would absolutely agree. Yeah. But other than Alien and Blade Runner, which we'll probably get back a little bit to later because, hint, we're going to talk about Alien Covenants. <laughs> Uh, Ridley Scott is a filmmaker that all of his films have a kind of feeling that I struggle with when I watch. A boredom, if you will. (laughs) A lead-footed quality. So for people that don't know, Ridley Scott got his uh, start making commercials. He worked for years and years in that. Still owns a commercial company with his family members, his children direct commercials. And then he ended up making his first picture, The Duelist, which we both watched for this podcast. Yeah, I, I liked it enough. Uh, it's the kind of movie I was thinking about while watching it that, you know, if it were like 1980 or whatever, and I'd seen The Duelist, Alien, and Blade Runner, I would have high hopes for this filmmaker. Yeah, I would have said that I love The Duelist before I told you to watch it last week, but then watching it again. So it's the story of two lieutenants in Napoleon's army, or lieutenants, pardon me, uh, I should... Oh, geez, get it right. What what country am I in, right? (laughs) Two lieutenants in Napoleon's army who have a decades-long feud over a perceived insult. Uh, Harvey Keitel and Keith Carradine. It's mostly Harvey Keitel who's inciting the the long feud, and they have, what, four or five duels? Yeah, five duels. Over the years, and it's all a matter of honor. And, uh, you know, the movie is very uh, influenced, one might even say derivative, of Barry Lyndon from two years earlier, both in the visual style and in the fact that it's a story of two very small, very shallow and stupid men against set against a grand historical backdrop. Well, and where Barry Lyndon is epic in scope and stuff like that uh, the duelist looks like that as well but it's also more of a music video aesthetic yeah. but like ryan o'neill in the middle of barry linden is this cypher he's this like pathetic guy and these guys also i mean i mean i think they're pathetic yeah they I don't absolutely know if Ridley scott feels the same way yeah uh, the issue with the film is that it's a story of two men that never change yeah. so what you're seeing is just them dueling over and over again for absolutely no reason and for a film of such massive scope its scope also seems so narrow mm-hmm. i mean I, I i don't know like i had trouble just getting invested in these guys yeah I absolutely did as well watching it this time. It, it looks amazing. And though. the actual duels are super engaging. Oh, yeah. Like if you showed the clip to someone, you'd be like, whoa, I want to know the story behind that and the passions uh-huh. that are fueling both men. But those passions in the context of the duelists is nothing. I also uh, frankly don't think the movie was well served by the two lead actors. You know, Harvey Keitel, great actor. Uh, I love him. I was very distracted by the New York <laughs> accent. <laughs> are you one of those uh, Last Temptation of Christ? Like, can't take Harvey Keitel in that. 
that. I like him in that, uh, although he is a little distracting in that, too. Uh, Keith Carradine, you know, what can you say? He's Keith Carradine. Well, I think that Ridley definitely wanted to put modern actors in this kind of stodgy story. Like, this ain't your grandpa's Joseph Conrad adaptation. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like you said, it is a little bit distancing in what's going on. If anything, I kind of wish the movie were a little funnier, like Barry Lyndon is. Mm -hmm. Like, if if it... poked a little more at the absurdity of the situation. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, the movie is an amazing technical achievement, as I would say most of Sir Ridley's movies are, even the ones I don't like. So atmospherically, it works perfectly. But the story he's trying to tell is not that compelling. There's not very uh, strong character work. Mm -hmm. And the suspense is inherent in the scene, not the entire film, which is basically the summary of Ridley Scott's entire career. So I'm surprised that Ridley Scott holds the place that he holds in society i mean he's one of the few directors that everyone even men on the street know by Mm -hmm. name and i i don't know why that is except the fact that he's made a lot of movies that have been popular yeah like because he's a journeyman the the duelist he made alien Mm -hmm. and you love alien right yes great film yeah so i don't think there's much that we can discuss about that that hasn't been touched on before and then he made blade runner so he's just like doubling down on this atmosphere and then you look at his career there's thelma and louise love it uh yeah it's okay uh there's You know, the Gladiator, The Martian, Black Hawk Down, uh, movie after movie, or even something like Hannibal, which has been, been forgotten to the sands of time, but which was very big at the time. He's, I mean, I watched Hannibal right after we decided <laughs> to do this podcast and I went in liking it when it started. But then all the Ridley Scott problems appeared. It's formless. Its story goes in a million different directions and not in an interesting way. He seems completely uninterested in any kind of character. He's presenting you situations and then going, all right, we're moving on to the next thing. And there's no reason for you to attach yourself to it. Written by David Mamet. Mm -hmm. And produced by uh, Dino De Laurentiis. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, I guess he owns the character, right? That's absolutely true. Yeah. So he was going to make a sequel to Silence of the Lambs no matter what. (laughs) Yeah. And the thing that's good about Hannibal is that it's very gothic feeling. It's like grim. And Scott brings a cool style to it. But that's what it is. A cool style. It's just so weird to me that Ridley Scott would make that movie. Like a guy who, you know, it was the Coming movie made Gladiator. after Gladiator. Like, you don't need to pick up the table scraps of Jonathan Demme, do you? Well, I mean, the career of Ridley Scott is an odd one, right? About why he makes the choices that he makes. There are a lot of, like, undeniable clunkers in there. I, I mean, I love Kingdom of Heaven, which I watched over the last week. The director's cut. That's the one I hear defended a lot. Which I know yeah. that Will didn't watch because it's three hours and change. <laughs> but that's one that was kind of brutally massacred in theaters, and then he got to impose his vision back on it. And like all of his movies, characters don't change. It's telling a story. But at least it's an emotional one that you can get involved in. But we're here to talk about a movie that Will loved, Black Hawk Down. Oh, man. God. So, all right. Oh, so, we, we disagreed your, on this Yeah, one. we did. I saw your letterbox review, one and a half star. <laughs> now, that is a rating out of spite and nothing less. Justin was upset that I called him out in my letterbox review, and I'd like to apologize to him on air. In my letterbox review, I said, I'll always resent my <laughs> podcast co-host for making me do this episode. So, Justin, I'm sorry. So, why did you hate Black Hawk Down so much? I mean, it's an utterly numbing experience. On, I completely agree on, with on you. On the one hand. Uh, I mean, technically. Yep. 
absolutely unimpeachable, but mm-hmm. it's it's numbing. There's not a single interesting character. I don't feel emotionally invested in it at all. It's endless. And it's on top of that, it's just like cowboys and Indians, like gung-ho American So I shit. wrote a review of Black Hawk Down when it came out for a website that has disappeared from the internet. And everything you just said, I wrote in that review back in the day. <laughs> nice. All right. We agree. <laughs> but we but agree. now I've evolved and I am an overmind. <laughs> oh, sure. And, th- and then and now you're like, you know what I like about the movie is that it's apolitical. It doesn't take sides. That's you, right? I love I actually really enjoyed the pure emptiness of the violence oh happening god. on screen. Oh my god. Because like like you said, there's really no characters to root for beyond that these are actors that maybe you recognize. Yeah. And like and what a cast! Like you know, future stars: Tom Hardy, Orlando Bloom, Tom Tom Hardy, baby faced, yeah. and doing an accent that's not the mumbly one that I, he would use. I had to pause to see that it was actually him. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Tom Sizemore back when he was a bankable future, star. Future star Tom Sizemore. Yeah, <laughs> there's actually the guy, uh, a Game of Thrones star that appears in a small role in the film as well, and I don't mm. remember what his name. He was in the film Headhunters. Mm. Visually, it's probably his most Tony Scott like mm-hmm. movie. I. I it's hard for me to view this movie without viewing it like in the prism of like the next 15 years of American foreign policy. Oh, come on. No, yeah, yeah, I'm going for it. And, oh, jeez. And uh, the, the... Listen, can't you just separate the context that it was made from? No, because by doing that, you are supporting the status quo. And basically, this movie puts forward the idea that, listen, we got a great military, we got the best soldiers in the world, and uh, what, what's great about these soldiers is they don't ask any questions about why they're going into battle. Yeah, they, see, that's not the way that go, I saw they it. They go into battle. And then also, on top of that, it presents this view of the rest of the world world that that's like well we got the greatest soldiers in the world and if they can't fix the rest of the world that's the rest of the world's fault because they're just too fucking savage for us to do anything yeah that's about. not the way We're i read it civilized. Well. well for me the mission that they do in black hawk down is pointless it like doesn't even get brought up once it happens right mm-hmm. this whole conflict means nothing right and these men trapped in the situation are just guys like they're not they're given the basis definition across the board right but we're supposed to think they're great we're supposed to think they're are great. we I mean, yeah i think we are I, 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 like ridley scott himself he has said, said it's pro-military but anti-war yeah, i know which yeah. is like fuck you sir ridley <laughs> yeah that i agree with that. listen i want to interpret it in a way that allows me to enjoy it <laughs> Hey, if you liked it, that's great. <laughs> I did like and it. I, but I also got tired of seeing all of these like letterboxed reviews that I that I looked at afterwards that were like, what's great about the movie is it doesn't pick sides. It's like, <gasps> fuck you. Yes, it does. Uh, yeah, I think it does. Considering the fact that it portrays the enemy as screaming hordes. Yeah. And, and that are completely and it, has, it has that music that's like, <laughs> you know, that generic <laughs> Middle East music. <laughs> except it's Somalia. It kind of uh, revels in the fact that like bodies explode and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. It's just like, you know, foreign people getting massacred, blowed down, mown down. I, I don't know. I think 13 hours is better, frankly. You know, they both shared the same editor, um, Pietro Scalia. Who, the, vi- the visual style is very similar. Yeah. Yeah. And who I would actually blame for a lot of the way that Ridley Scott's film from Black Hawk Down actually feel. Pietro Scalia being the editor who won an Academy Award for JFK because huh. he did that. But I think that him and Ridley Scott are kind of... They have both of the wrong um, attitudes when it comes to editing films. Because something that all of the really Scott films, even past Black Hawk Down, have is a kind of aimlessness and airlessness yeah. that wasn't always present in his films before. I think the thing about Ridley Scott is that he is a very good technical filmmaker. If you watch the documentaries, he likes to 
be hands-on on everything. He's a cameraman on set. Mm. He likes to uh, work with the production design. He's involved in everything. But at the same time, he has no sense of narrative drive yeah. at all in his yeah. movies because that's something that doesn't interest him. And because he has an editor who doesn't understand that, that's when you run into problems. Yeah, interesting. Well, hey, listen, if I can be a little positive for a minute, I saw a movie this week that I had never seen before. I somehow went my whole life without watching Gladiator. What? Really? I had never seen Gladiator. Why, wait, what? But the Will Sloan, when Gladiator came out, was an Entertainment Weekly subscribing Oscar watching film superfan. I was 11 years old and too young to get in. Oh, really? Yeah. It, had it come out two years later, I certainly would have seen it. And we didn't see it on VHS or anything like that? No. just uh, ne- So what did you say, Gladiator? I thought it was... Fine. Fine. Yeah, absolutely. It it's, it's, has that lead-footed Ridley Scott quality to it. but the, And, you know, for the first hour, I was kind of like, oh, God, I can't... I, like move it along but then once the story started where he's like you know it's mano a mano with him and Joaquin yeah. Phoenix in the court I, I was kind of into it like I, I think I like Ridley Scott most when he's sort of an exploitation filmmaker I agree with you I think that Ridley Scott is the best when he's tackling a genre and doing that genre in whichever way that he wants to do it whether it be a haunted house with Alien or Gladiator where it's just a Steve Reeves Gladiator film that happens to be done in the Ridley Scott style yeah and it's got you know an amazing battle scene at the beginning and it's got good actors i I know this was russell crowe's academy award-winning performance um i think he's a little wooden in it but he's wooden in like a good way steve reeves way yeah Yeah, like he's a like a square jawed hero who has no flaws and and does not change and i think joaquin phoenix is the perfect foil for it (laughs) who's the realist kind of method actor yeah and uh oliver reed in his final role who died before the film was completed in an arm wrestling championship (laughs) during a drinking binge oh that's how i want to (laughs) go Uh, but I think he's just adds the spark of life that the movie needs, you know? Mm-hmm. And after Gladiator, you know, that was Hannibal and Black Hawk Down. But the thing that actually really wanted me to do a Ridley Scott episode as well is that I don't understand recently this kind of feverish um, fandom that people have given his work. And by that, I mean Prometheus and the Alien Covenant. Yeah. Because after Black Hawk Down, Because after Gladiator, you know, it's shaky, right? You got Kingdom of Heaven, which I like. A Good Year, which I haven't seen, but is not uh, critically held in very high esteem. American Gangster, Body of Lies, Robin Hood. Films that have been forgotten to the sands of time because, you know, they're just unmemorable. I watched Robin Hood last week. Oh, God. It's bad. (laughs) It's one of those movies that you watch and go, why does this exist? You're not giving me anything new or anything that you haven't done before. It's two hours long. It feels like a film made by a man who's been in the industry for a long time and feels the need to make movies because that's what he does. Yeah, I feel that way about like Ron Howard, you know, it's like there's this class of guys and what I want to say to them is like, why not just garden instead? (laughs) Yeah, like you've done it. Like you have films that are considered classics. Unless you have stories you want to tell, like The Counselor, which I feel was very close to Ridley That's such an outlier in his body of work, isn't it? I Mm -hmm. mean, I think it's probably, it had a $25 million budget, which is probably less than anything else he's done in the last 15 years. And it's composed of actors just monologuing to each other. How do you feel about The Counselor? I really like The Counselor. Watched it a few days ago. Yeah. Listen, I, I got physically ill. And I sat in bed and watched like six Ridley Scott films in a row. <laughs> I don't know. I think The Counselor, I, I know people are very, it's a very divisive movie. I probably fall 
somewhere in the middle on it, but leaning positive. Well, it's a very miserable film experience, right? I mean, it has it, it, it's kind of kooky in that in that Cormac McCarthy way, and it has a lot of fun performances in it. It has a lot of scenes that I remember fondly, like yeah, it's the a, car sex scene. You it's know? also a small film. Yeah, like its story is trying to tell could be summed up in a short story, mm-hmm. but it's the way that the actors kind of chew on the dialogue, whether it be Bruno Gantz mm-hmm. having a big monologue to uh, Michael Fassbender or even um, Javier Bardem just going on and on and on about crazy stuff that's not related to the plot at all. Yeah, like Cormac McCarthy's one of those writers like David Mamet where you enjoy hearing the words come out of certain actors' mouths. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder what the movie would have been like if the Coen brothers directed it. Were they ever supposed to direct it? No, or? but like, oh. imagine if they did. Yeah, it would be completely different. Yeah, I think it would have had a certain lighter touch to it. But I think that what you can also see in The Counselor is something that's been happening a lot to Ridley Scott's film, is that it's a very clean film, like mm. shot on digital. It's missing kind of the the textures that you would get with his early work, whether that is just literally smoke yeah. <laughs> on screen, as I, I noticed during a scene in Black Rain, the Michael Douglas film, where it looked <laughs> like everything was on fire indoors. And this is something I really miss in his his movies, because we saw Alien Covenant a few days ago, and the movie looks perfect, but it looks perfect in the way that like an iPad looks perfect. All right, something. let's throw down to the people who probably clicked on this episode because they went, I love Ridley Scott. I hope these guys are finally going to raise up his critical reputation. Uh, so Prometheus, bad movie. Bad movie. Yeah, real Boring. bad. I can't remember a single thing about it, though. I've seen so. it three or four times. Okay. Uh, mostly because people have come to me and gone, man, it's great. And I go, hmm, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Let me give it another chance. <laughs> I That that bridge has sailed. Like, I'm not going to watch Prometheus anymore unless someone wants to sit down who loves the movie and we'll watch it together. But Alien Covenant, I think, is an even more dispiriting film. Oh, I absolutely agree. I'd watch Prometheus again before I'd watch Alien Covenant. Because it's just a a retread of the first Alien movie, but without any character, texture or character or like there there are, what, a dozen characters in this film. And as we were watching, we kept leaning to each other being like, who the hell is this? (laughs) (laughs) And he's just recycling beats that he's done before, but just worse. Kind of boring. And the movie has this sterile and antiseptic quality to it like the the, the images look too perfect mm-hmm. you know uh what would you say to people who say you know alien covenant it's not about the alien anymore now it's about michael fassbender being an artist he's frankenstein himself creating his own monsters i mean i think it's just like banal shit that we've seen <laughs> in a million other movies you, you know like we've seen sir ridley do it better in blade runner this <laughs> idea about what does it mean to be human I, I don't understand is that there's this group of people who have taken Prometheus and Alien Covenant and have, are fighting so hard to yeah. let you know how much they think it's great. Okay, you know, I also think one reason why Ridley Scott has such a following is because uh, he made certain movies that came out when a certain type of male was like, you know, 13, 14. Mm-hmm. Uh, and was very important to people who are 13 and 14. So like Gladiator, Black Hawk Down, these are movies that young teenage boys see, and it's like... Or even Alien or uh, Blade Runner. Yeah, and then they catch up on those, and it's like he made movies during those early 2000s years about like strong men standing. It's the same reason that like these same sorts of boys grew up and started to like Christopher Nolan movies. Mm. You know, strong men standing up against uh, an unjust status quo or something like that. So they're the types of stories that get the types of audience who passionately identify with and respond to them. And why Alien? That's what I don't understand. Like, these people who are falling over themselves to defend Alien Covenant, like, they weren't there for Exodus 
No. Like, what? then why this particular movie? Um, well... I, I don't know why. I think it's maybe because they're really invested in the alien brand. Um, also, like, I, I guess maybe they think that, like, these alien movies have been sold kind of as, oh, the master creator, the guy who created this comes back. And, like, these are the same sorts of people who invest a lot in David Fincher or Stanley Kubrick. Do you as think being these that big... they believe that if these films fail, that it devalues the previous attempt? I think so, because like the, the, like with Kubrick and with Fincher and with people like that, not to equate Kubrick and Fincher, but, mm-hmm. but like they're they're guys who part of their brand is being like the master, the master strategist behind. Like they know this. everything that's going on. And, and I think, you know, Sir Ridley kind of also cultivates a little bit bit of this for himself too, right? Like I've seen people defend passionately the twist ending of Alien Covenant, which is the dumbest twist ending in the world. The dumbest twist ending that anyone can see 20 minutes. But like, they're like, oh, he knows that you know what's coming. No, he doesn't. (laughs) He doesn't. Which ends with the most ridiculous line ever. Don't let the bed bugs bite. (laughs) Alien Covenant has a Kung Fu scene in the middle of the movie. I loved that. Yeah, me too. You know, the only 10 minutes of the movie that I really liked were basically... When it gets violent? When it gets violent. When it becomes like a full-on Roger Corman <laughs> alien ripoff towards the end. That was fun. Even though that when I leaned over and went, hey, it's like Roger Corman's producing, you went, eh, Roger Corman would show more stuff. Well, okay, I said that because there was a shower scene where you didn't see any boobs. And <laughs> frankly, I think I can be forgiven for wanting to see some boobs in a movie like this. <laughs> so right there, the people writing passionate emails to us about how much they love Ridley Scott wrote boobs and underlined it <laughs> underneath Will Sloan. I think this is something where me and the Ridley Scott fans can agree, you know? <laughs> Let's let's get some boobs in here. <laughs> but at the end of the day, the thing that is really the struggling block with Ridley Scott and the Prometheus and Alien Covenant films is they're not they're not suspenseful at all. Yeah. Like on any level, you don't even need great characters if you want to craft a suspenseful even film. Even Gladiator isn't suspenseful. No. You know exactly where it's going. Exactly. Yeah. So I think that's the one thing that like it'd be interesting if Ridley Scott did go down a pathway of making more films like The Counselor, applying his visual style to stories that he hasn't told before mm-hmm. and just going like all out. And it, yet he seems hell bent on doing this alien cinematic <laughs> universe. He says he wants to do two more. He is going to die on the set of an alien. And film. I don't understand this because it's not like he's like some 35 year old director who's made a couple of splashes at Sundance and has been given the keys to the alien universe. He's no Jean-Pierre Genet. Yeah, like why? Why do why do this? I, I, I You've already proven yourself. And like Prometheus was his attempt to make a big budget science fiction film without involving the alien. But Alien Covenant, he's like, Yeah, I guess this is what you want. This is what I'm gonna make. Yeah, and he's he's eighty. Yeah. <laughs> This is how you want to spend your twilight years? <laughs> a, he probably has some debts we don't know about uh-huh. that he needs to pay off. And like you said, he doesn't want a garden. Doesn't like it. Yeah. Well, I guess there's something uh, to the idea of working. Isn't it amazing, too, that, like, all of his movies have $100 million budgets, too? Like, you know, for all the flops, he's never really had a fallow period. He's never been in director jail. He just keeps... Well, he does go and make, like, little... Like, he made Matchstick Men. Yeah, yeah. Which was a little picture. But he's also a, like you said kind of a journeyman director. Mm-hmm. You can just toss anything his way and he'll go make... Like, he did Hannibal. Yeah. <laughs> like, why? That's crazy, yeah. <laughs> All right. So this week, we have one letter. Hey. And this letter is from Juhat Matula, 
who previously sent us a letter about Seijin Suzuki. Mm. Ooh, what does he have to say this time after our Seijin Suzuki episode? <laughs> Which we have to point out, me and Will, we only talked about for 15 minutes. I know, it was. I was actually a little bit ashamed of it when it went out, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> he goes, hello again. I just wanted to thank you for the Seijin Suzuki podcast. And I'd like to apologize for the poor job we did on it. <laughs> I don't agree completely with your assessment, but really like the way you stated your reasons for your somewhat ambivalent relationship to Suzuki's work. This is what makes your podcast great. It's fun to listen to, but it's also insightful. Like I said in my last letter, keep up the good work. So you're going to take that apology back? Uh, well, thank you. I I actually uh, thought of you, uh, loyal listener. When, Tears streaming down your cheeks. As I was doing that episode, and I thought how much I was probably disappointing you. <laughs> um, but I like Suzuki more than I like Ridley Scott. <laughs> but we talked about Ridley Scott for 30 minutes. Like, but I also like Blade Runner more than I like any Sajin Suzuki film. So <laughs> I'm full of contrasts. Yeah, and at the same <laughs> time, we're much more passionate about it because yeah. you dislike it that much more. Yeah. <laughs> and the letter continues, Oh, I also have watched Detour because of you. Great movie. It seems this is something that makes you two happy. So there. Well, thank you. Uh, what is this, like four or five people who yeah. told us they watched Detour? I think that's great. Listen, folks, uh, we cannot get enough letters telling us that you watched Edgar G. Elmer's Detour on our mm-hmm. recommendation. And This is our Golden Brick Award winner. <laughs> when we do our uh, first live Important Cinema Club podcast in a theater, I think it has to be Detour, right? Yeah, and uh, people can come dressed as uh, Tom <laughs> favorite Neal. Characters. Yeah. Uh, Tom Neal, right before he's getting the capital punishment. Yeah. Didn't he get killed, or he went just went to jail? Uh, yeah, yeah, he went to jail. It was manslaughter. Oh, okay. Right? Yeah. So, in and real life. This letter continues. P.S. Fun fact. There's a bike brand that's named after Ridley Scott. As an avid cycling fan and someone who likes Alien and Blade Runner quite a lot. Ooh, I hope this podcast didn't make you too angry. I found this to be the most interesting scene carrying Ridley's name since. Oh, Well, at least since 1997 when Ridley bikes were introduced. Still eager to hear your episode. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And as per usual, you can send us letters at importcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. Questions, comments, uh, telling us you watched Detour. (laughs) It all works out in the end. And so what are we doing next week, Will? Uh, Are we doing Bollywood next week? Yeah, we're doing Bollywood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaking of uh, um, subjects that we have almost nothing to say about. Okay, after Bollywood, we have to do something that we know a lot about. Oh, yeah, we already have it in the can. And when you're going to hear what it is, you're going to go, oh, okay. (laughs) But Bollywood, it's something that I want to discover more of Mm. but at the same time an issue with it is i it's tough to talk about because there's not that many like books on bollywood i feel like i can read Mm. like i have a book called funky bollywood which deals with bollywood films in the 70s and stuff like that but as far as like primers they're kind of tough to come by would you agree or yeah i mean i have a few bollywood books at home but uh i mean one problem too is there's not a lot of like actually good writing about Mm -hmm. bollywood yep well, because, and I know it sounds kind of weird that we would say, we're going to talk about one country's output for yeah. one episode, but I don't think there's any country in the world that's as popular as Indian cinema mm-hmm. that has such a specific style of movie that it makes. Right. So for people that don't know, they're incredibly long, usually about three hours, doesn't matter what it is filled with musical numbers mm. and that's what's expected from films made in the indian system so we're going to be looking at uh the classic amitabh bakchan film dawn mm-hmm. and then we're going to be looking at its mid-2000s remake also called dawn B- 
because the remake of Dawn stars Shah Rukh Khan, who's a major Bollywood star. You may have seen him in Cineplex ads where he's like, come visit, uh, I don't know, India? What? what? I, presumably, <laughs> that's where he's from, yes. And we're going to compare and contrast both films, and I'm sure I'm going to watch some other Bollywood films as well. Probably yeah. Mother India, that's a really popular one. Is that, does that count as Bollywood? Isn't it? Is that's India. I guess it's an India. I guess it is a Bollywood film. Uh, you know what? Yeah. We're saying Bollywood in probably the broadest but like, of terms. But like, we're not going to be talking about like Satyajit Ray or No, we're or not going to be talking about like, anything like we're that. We're talking about like populist like we're also going to talk about indian cinema that probably doesn't qualify as bollywood like the bahubali films that we saw oh, like tollywood which would be tollywood yeah sure. but are often kind of lumped in the same category don't expect a rigorous academic <laughs> uh discussion no but hopefully it'll be a nice primer to people that want to kind of dip their toe into that and we can recommend some film that they should watch but will mostly be composed of us going wasn't that crazy <laughs> and stuff like that all right so until then my name is justin the clue i'm will sloan thanks for listening So this was a real tale of two movies this week. Uh, we both went to the movies twice together. Uh, we went to see Alien Covenant, but before that, we went to see a another long-awaited sequel uh, to, to, to a beloved franchise. We saw Bon Cop, Bad Cop 2. For people that don't know and have not listened to our Canadian cinema episode, Bon Cop, Bad Cop, for a long time, was the biggest Canadian moneymaker ever. In from Canada. A Cana- yeah, from a Canadian production. Uh, and it, it made most of its, I think, $11 million box office in <laughs> Quebec. That's so pitiful. $11 million. <laughs> We're a country of only like 35 million people. I mean... <laughs> and you would have expected that a sequel would have followed right on its heels with Colin Fior and Patrick Urach playing the two cops from two different sides of Canada. One of them who speaks French. One of them who speaks English. Uh, a sequel to arrive right away. Nope. It took... 10 years that's incredible <laughs> like what is going on there was it just like infighting about money that that could have been what happened maybe right? i mean you know patrick huard um is a massive star in quebec mm-hmm. which is amazing to me first of all because quebec has a population of 8.1 million people and yet they're able to sustain a thriving film industry and just a thriving enter- media industry they have talk shows yeah and there's no kind of penetration into other countries or like in English-speaking Canada, there's no crossover of Quebec films. Right. Like, you don't hear people really talking about and that. Quebec films don't uh, really get sent to France very much. And, and Because they're very culturally specific. And also, you know, people from France don't make it big in Quebec either because they don't... They want to hear people with Quebecois accents. Yeah, exactly. There's, like, a strong cultural chauvinism there, too. <laughs> but we did talk about walking away from the theater, about that kind of reflects the way that Hong Kong was yeah. when they had their own film industry. Th- also, they were had a population of maybe 8 million people. And uh, they had a huge striving industry. Yeah. But there was a little bit more of international distribution when it came to Hong Kong films, as opposed to Quebec films. But Patrick Huard is maybe the biggest star in Quebec. He was in Starbuck, which was later... Um, remade by Vince Vaughn as the delivery man. I think uh, it was directed called. by the same director who yeah. just remade his own film shot for shot. He starred in Les Boys, which was the previous record holder. Uh, and he was in uh, Xavier Dolan's Mommy. And Colin Fior, famous Shakespearean actor. Performs at Stratford a lot. Uh, he was Trudeau in the famous Trudeau miniseries. So they finally, these two titans coming back head to head for Bad Backup 2, a film that... Let's be honest. Me and Will were not excited for in the slightest. We saw it because we were originally going to do it as the premium episode, but then we had the brighter idea to do Twin Peaks. <laughs> so we went in going, Bokop Backup 1 is 
fairly enjoyable. It's competent in what yeah, it does. Yeah, I mean, it's hacky, but it follows the rush hour template. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. stylish enough. Like, the, what the happens guys, in it has kind of gone out of my memory. But, like, the two guys work well together. Mm, yeah, know? they have a good chemistry. Yeah. And now, brought back ten years later, in a script written by Patrick Hurov, sole credited writer, <laughs> this movie is god-awful. One of the worst <laughs> things I've ever seen in a theater. <laughs> like, me and Will sat there, uh, just completely befuddled staring at the screen surrounded by the laughter of two people oh yeah we, we had the grindhouse experience we had people in the row behind us like literally talking back to the screen and like not, not ironically it's like in one scene the villain beats up a, a guy and the woman behind us said what a jerk yeah and the guy across from me was cackling like he was watching like the funniest film in the world yeah i get accused a lot of saying a film has no jokes and, um, like, a friend of mine angrily got back at me going, films have jokes. You just don't like those jokes that they're making. This film has no jokes. No. <laughs> like, not at all. It's an expanse of just nothingness. I mean, there's a lot of drama in it, too. Like, there's a whole subplot where Combe Fior has Lou Gehrig's disease <laughs> that is played dead straight. And, like, like Combe Fior plays it as if he were Lear. Yeah. Like, like it, that just just intense commitment it's like oh, i feel bad watching this it is incredibly plot heavy for a film that has like no plot yeah so the movie was marketed here as it's like okay the quebecois cop the ontario cop they're back but this time they're fish out of water in america and you think great that's a very doable premise mm. they spend maybe 20 minutes of this two-hour movie in the in america and the time they spend in america is in a police station staffed by the most canadian americans ever committed <laughs> at the screen and it's like it, it's a whole goofy thing where it's like you know uh patrick huard gets arrested for being a suspected terrorist and then these like bumbling barney fife type <laughs> police policemen don't know what quebec is yep uh, just just uh, and but then the big twist ending it turns out is that the fbi agent is actually trying to trying to plot a bomb scare against Muslims. And I heard the director speak about the uh, thematics of the film, saying that, number one, it's about accepting people as they are for a film that has no people of any other uh, ethnicity in it. Um, what about the black terrorist towards the end? You okay, him? sorry, I should <laughs> say positive. There's also a... Um, There's a transgender character, is there? Yeah, that's uh, full of transphobic humor. Yeah. Uh, and there's a little bit of homophobia as well. Yeah. It's not even, like, the minimum of an action film. Yeah. Like, nothing happens, and it's two hours and change. It looks so low rent. It's like the buddy cop comedy. Like It's, <laughs> it's easy. It's so easy. Yeah, like... Like, you have them, they have some shenanigans, they meet some goons, they have, like, a gunfight or a fist fight. There's a falling out at the two-thirds mark, and then they, they come back together. It should be easy. And, you know, the American premise had promise. Yeah, but they don't go to America. Yeah. And it's a film, like we said, that has the visual style of, like, nothing. Of It's oh. like a Chantal Ackerman film. <laughs> like, just putting the camera down and filming whatever's <laughs> happening on screen. Yeah, so I hate Canada. <laughs> because of this movie can we talk about the subtitles as well oh they're fucked up like, <laughs> yeah, like 
there was a big space between every apostrophe. It looked like they were machine generated in the VHS era. Like this is the kind of like uh, we don't give a fuck about like the release of this film, right? And like that, that just makes me feel so bad for my country. But this, the sequel to the biggest Canadian film of all time, just looks you know like what? this. You guys are gonna eat this shit. Like you don't care. You're gonna love it. I don't know. To, to think that I would just accept this after ten years, having moved on from the Bond Cop <laughs> Bad Cop adventures. Like I was, I was living my life just fine without them and then this movie comes with this smug air of entitlement like hey hey patrick and comb are be- are back yeah but now comb pure has lou garrick's disease like the most awful physical disease you can have yeah. like is the next one he's gonna be like uh, i don't even want to think about it and that whole plot about like a, th- a terrorist threat against muslims at the end it's like it's so unpleasant like it just like strike well you're 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 approaching it from a perspective that there's no understanding or like uh empathy toward them because like we said there's no muslim characters yeah. in the film at all yeah right? exactly so that's very insulting but you know what um it doesn't matter because a lot of people came up on my feed saying you know what no i enjoyed the movie well, I'm glad they did. I don't I don't like people having a bad time in the movies. Doesn't it have like 80%? Wait, people saw this movie? Doesn't it have like 80% on Rotten Tomatoes or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I, I believe uh, one, one, critic, uh, one critic for a major daily newspaper said that it's not just very good, it's also très bien. Do you think that like the, the wheelbarrow of money that pulled up to his house? Well, I wouldn't want to cast any aspersions on my colleagues in the film criticism racket. But this film is objectively it's, bad. It, yeah, it's terrible. Like, I wouldn't even recommend it in a, oh, it's so bad, it's good kind of way. It felt, when it ended, it felt like a week had passed. <laughs> I like when you turned to me at one point and you went, I'm going to die here. 